All right, so we're in a new series today. We're starting a new series, and it's our Advent series. And we got really, really, really creative with the title this year, and it's Advent 2018. And so we, we spent a lot of time, thank you, Kenneth, we spent a lot of time on that idea. And so we, we, we did spend a good amount of time uh, thinking through this series, or, and we kind of copied another redemption, so maybe we didn't actually. And so, uh, but uh, Advent is this time of year where we celebrate Jesus coming to earth. That's what Advent means. It means coming or arrival or beginning. And so Advent is this time every year where we intentionally look at the arrival of Jesus. We intentionally look at Jesus coming to earth and we celebrate that. Now we get this. We get that when there's past good events, we should celebrate that. We should celebrate those things. There's something human about celebrating past events that we hold in high regard. Like, you go to every culture and every nation across the world, they're going to have some sort of holidays or times of the year where they celebrate some sort of things they consider to be good or good things that happened in their history. And, and we're no different as humans. We even do this on, on a personal level, right? And I know I was just nice to you students, but now I'm going to be mean to you again. And, and it's because I'm friends with some of you on Facebook, and I watch how, for, for some of you, uh, there are some moments in your life that are really important for you to celebrate in order to stir up this love in yourself. And so since I'm friends with a lot of you on Facebook, what I've seen uh, is often you'll be dating somebody for a, a, a long time, one whole month, and you will be celebrating your one-month anniversary for, with this person on Facebook and all this stuff. And man, that's just so cute and beautiful uh, until two months later when you guys break up. And so there's something in us, though, as people where we like to celebrate. We like to remember, even when it's new like that. Some of you are like this with your birthdays. You're like, hey, let's celebrate the advent of me today, right? Like, that's like your thing. Like, you're excited. And if you're like that, please change just for us. For us collectively, I'm sorry. It's just Jesus is better than you. And so we're like this, those people. We like to celebrate. I, I, and it's easy for me to make fun of you guys, but I'm just as silly. There are all these kind of silly holidays like our nation has or our world has, really. I, I don't know where they come from. I usually hear about all these kinds of holidays from the radio or from Facebook. And, and for instance, one holiday I hear about all, almost every year because of Facebook or the radio is National Pizza Day. And when I hear it's National Pizza Day, something in me is like, it is time to celebrate <laughs> the goodness of pizza. There is just something in me that's like, I got to get pizza and put it in my mouth and just know how good it tastes and how good it is. And now we say all of life is all for Jesus here. And so I know that as I eat that pizza, I am worshiping the Lord on high who created the ingredients needed to make that thing. And so I, I'm silly too. I'm silly too when it comes to celebrating things. We're all, we all kind of have these things we celebrate and we remember, and Advent should be like that. But it should be a little bit probably more reverent. It should be a little bit more like a husband and a wife celebrating their anniversary. So husbands and wives, every year, they, they celebrate the day they got married. And the reason they do that is because they want to stir up the love they have for one another. They want to remember the love that they promised to each other at the beginning of their covenant in marriage. And so when we get to Advent, 
Our hope every year is not to just do this Christmas thing because we do this Christmas thing. Our hope is that our, our affection for Jesus would be stirred up. That we would begin to look at Jesus and remember his mighty works and remember what he's done in order to be stirred up into a deeper love for him. And that's what we hope to do with this series this year. And so how we've kind of looked at doing that is we're going to look at one verse in particular in Isaiah chapter 9, and it's verse 6. And in this verse, what we see is that, that Jesus is given four names, four titles, but it says four names in there. That Jesus is called Wonderful Counselor, that he's called Mighty God, that he's called Everlasting Father, and that he's called Prince of Peace. And so each week of our Advent series uh, over the next month, we're going to look at one of those names in depth. And our hope is that as we look at those names, that we would be stirred to praise, that we would have a deeper glimpse into who Jesus is, because Jesus is the infinite God of the universe. And so Jesus is unending for us. And so we can celebrate Advent, not with dull hearts or tired that we do this every year, but with renewed hearts, understanding that we can glimpse into who Jesus is every Advent and be stirred to give him praise and glory and honor. And so that's my hope for this series. And so today, as we look at that word, wonderful counselor, this is kind of the structure of my message, if that's helpful for you. First, we're, we're going to just hop into the world of Isaiah. We're going to see who Isaiah is prophesying to, what his message is about, what's going on at the time when he's prophesying. Secondly, we'll look down uh, at that chapter, Isaiah 9, together, and we'll see this picture of this king that, that, that is named in verse 6 with these four names. And then, thirdly, we're going to look at that wonderful counselor name of Jesus our King and see how that should cause our hearts to praise him more this Advent season, okay? So let's hop into the world of Isaiah first. So Isaiah was a prophet in Israel, and Israel had this moment in their history where they split into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, and there was the southern kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Judah, as its capital, had Jerusalem. And Isaiah's in Jerusalem prophesying these things to the leaders of Judah, and probably even specifically the leaders of Jerusalem. But he's, he, he's prophesying these things that we find in the book of Isaiah uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem for Judah. And, but as you read it, you, what you realize is Isaiah is really prophesying this to every, all of Israel, not just Judah, but for all of Israel, okay? And so that's important to note as well. And so as you first start reading Isaiah, the thing that strikes you most is that it is full of God's judgment of Israel. That's, you get to Isaiah, and that's what you notice first, right away in chapter 1. Let me read a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 1 just to show. Uh, verses 4 and 5. Isaiah is saying this, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. Isaiah starts off with this message of judgment for Israel. Just saying, 
You guys are evil. You guys are full of sin. Your parents are evil. You're evil. You do evil. Your whole head is sick. Your whole heart is sick. You are sick with sin. You're evil. And so Isaiah starts off with this judgment. And you see it through the the rest of these chapters. Isaiah chapter 3 even talks about how the daughters of Zion are walking gleefully in their sin and that God is not happy about that. And so as you're reading Isaiah, you're like, this is not very encouraging. This is a text full of judgment. What is going on? And and there's more. God begins to tell Israel, this is how I'm going to judge you. This is what I'm going to do to judge you. He's actually going to send the nation of Syria and other nations to, to judge Israel, to take over Israel. And, and it causes Israel to be in exile. And you see an example of this in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. It says this, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, against, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder. Merry Christmas, Israel. Like, this is not an encouraging text. When you begin to read this, what you begin to see is that God is bringing judgment on Israel for their sin. And he's going to use another nation to do it. And he says, whoa, watch out, nation. Even though I'm using you, you're going to a godless nation. He's telling the people of God, they're godless. And so God is going to bring judgment. Now, as an aside, this isn't really part of my sermon, but we need to talk about it. This is hard for us to hear. Even some of you are like, why did you read these passages, Anthony? Well, because I want us to understand the world that Isaiah is in so that when we get to chapter 9, verse 6, it makes God look all the more glorious. And so I want to take a moment and say, why is this hard for us to hear, though? Why, when we go into these passages, why is it so hard? And I think it's because we have two small views of two things. The first thing is, I think we have such a small view of God's justice. God is just, That means he hates evil. That means he hates sin. I think a lot of times we look at the attributes of God and we say, well, there's these ones and these ones, and love is a little bit more here and justice here. And and, and that's just not true about God. He is holy and perfect in all of his attributes, so he is just as just as he is loving. And we don't have this vision of that sort of justice. We don't have that vision for God being that sort of of a just being. And part of that, I think, is because the other small view we have is we have such a small view of sin. If you read through the Old Testament, if you read through the prophets, if you read through the New Testament, and you read through the the, the writings there, you're not going to go away thinking, well, God's not that serious about sin. If you're going to read it honestly, you're going to go, God is very serious about sin. God hates sin. God does not want any sin marring his good creation. And he particularly does not like when humanity sins. And so I think it's hard for us to to look at this because we don't have this vision of God being just. Or we do, it's just kind of a, a soft justice 
Or we have this, this small vision of, of, of how serious our sin is. But God, when speaking to Israel and Isaiah says, no, your sin is serious. And so seriously, I'm going to actively work out my justice on you. Now, how is Isaiah chapter 9 more encouraging after hearing this? It's because of this. Isaiah chapter 9 shows us that God, in spite of Israel, in spite of sinners, he still wants to uphold his loving covenant with his people. He wants to uphold his covenant, even though the people of Israel are not holding up their side of the covenant, even though they are not living faithfully, even though they're not praising God who created them and rescued them out of Egypt. God still says, no, I, I still want to uphold that covenant. So when he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations through you and your people, he still wants to uphold that. When he, through Moses, said, hey, I want to give you hearts that are clean and righteous and you'll be able to live without sin and live righteously, God still wants to do that. When he said to David, I want to bring a king through your lineage who's going to make all things right and he's going to be a king forevermore, God still wants to do that. So even though God is allowing Israel to see that there are consequences to their sin, He's still showing an immense amount of grace by saying, I still want to uphold my covenant. I still want to do this. I still want to bless all the nations. I still want to make all hearts righteous again. I still want to bring a king who's going to fix everything. Now, we are blessed because we're on the other side of Jesus. We know he is that king. We know that he is the king born into the line of David. We know he is that king that gave his righteousness to Israel. We know that we, the nations, are blessed because Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, imparted his spirit to Israel so that they could live more righteously in a way, but then tell us the good news of how Jesus has saved us and he is king over all. And so now you and I can be part of God's kingdom. God is upholding that covenant in spite of human sin. So yes, there are moments in the old covenant where God does work out his justice in an active time. But even in the midst of that, he's still gracious by upholding the covenant he made with Israel. And so Isaiah's message is, yes, one of judgment, but it also becomes one of hope. All littered all throughout Isaiah are these messages like we'll, we'll get to in chapter 9 where God reminds Israel of what he's doing. Where he reminds Israel, hey, I know you've messed up. I know you've sinned. I know that there's going to be consequences for that. But ultimately, I'm still going to redeem all things. Ultimately, I'm still going to fix all of these things. And even, I think as Isaiah is proclaiming judgment to Israel, I think there was a mercy in that God was hoping that Israel would repent, that Israel would turn from their sins, that Israel would be a faithful remnant. Because all throughout Isaiah too, it's littered with God saying, when you do repent, humble yourselves, fear the Lord. Live as a faithful remnant, even though Israel's experiencing this judgment. 
And so I wonder if Isaiah chapter 9 is God being merciful to Israel saying, look, this is what I'm doing. You can trust in me. You can hope in me. And so that's what we get to in Isaiah chapter 9. We get this picture of a king who, after all these descriptions of kind of the darkness of Israel in chapter 8 and even before that a bit, in Isaiah chapter 9, we get this picture of a king who's going to be the light of the world, who, as Isaiah chapter 9 says, he's going to take away the gloom of the world. Isaiah chapter 9 is full of hope, and Isaiah is, yes, it's full of judgment, but it's all throughout hope, and the hope is built on this king who is coming to save us all, and again, we know that king to be Jesus, and that's why we celebrate Advent, and that's why we look at Isaiah 9, because it, it gives us a deeper glimpse into who Jesus is. And so two verses in particular, I think, point out and show us what God is doing in history and how he's bringing Jesus to save us all, the Son of God. Let's look at verse 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 9 to begin to, to glimpse at Jesus. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So even though Israel is experiencing this judgment, God is saying, I'm still going to fix all of this. I'm still going to make all things right. And I'm going to do it through my son who will be king over all. And look at how he's described. Look at the kind of king he is. He's a child given to us. We know that from the Advent story. That Jesus came as a baby. The government will be upon his shoulder. That just simply means that Jesus is the sort of king that can govern all because for him to carry the government, he just needs a shoulder, right? He is one strap backpacking this thing. Like he, he, that is how good of a king he is. That is how powerful of a king he is. He is the king in the line of David as promised to David. His kingdom will be held together by his hands, by his justiceness and his righteousness. And this is the good news, too. Jesus is the sort of king that doesn't just last, isn't just king for a term or isn't just king for his lifetime, but he is king forevermore. Now, Jesus lives forever, so bear with me with how I said that. But Jesus is a king forevermore. So this sort of kingdom that will be for all, because it says the increase of his government will know no end. That means that Jesus' kingdom is the sort of kingdom that's not just for the people of Israel, but it's for everyone on earth. Because his government will have no end. Not only that, his peace will have no end. This is the sort of kingdom that Jesus is ushering in now and will fully usher in one day. This is our king. And so I want us to get to know Jesus, our king, a little bit more intimately. And so we are going to look at those, those names over the next four weeks. 
But today we're going to stick on that first name, Wonderful Counselor. Now, here, here's the point to my sermon. I want you to look at Jesus. I don't, I'm not trying to convince you of something. I, I, I just want you to see that Jesus is our wonderful counselor king. And so as we break this down, as we look at what does it mean for Jesus to be our wonderful counselor, my hope is not that you go, wow, that was a great Advent sermon, Anthony. My hope is I got to see Jesus. I got to see who he is. That's my hope. And so as we look at wonderful counselor, let's ask the Holy Spirit to move in us in a way that we see Jesus more deeply and clearly. So let's break up those words, wonderful and counselor, before putting them back together so that we can understand what is being said about Jesus. So first we have wonderful. This is another one of those words that I think in the English language it gets dulled a little bit. So love uh, in the English language gets dulled a bit in, in that I can say I love my wife and I also love National Pizza Day. Like that, it, love gets dulled and so does this word wonderful. And so when you see the word wonderful here, think full of wonder. Think awe. So what it's saying is Jesus, our king, is full of wonder. He is awe-inducing. He is heart-stopping. He is full of wonder. And we're all wonder-seekers. We really are. Human, uh, the biggest difference to me between humans and animals is that we're wonder seekers. We are looking for wonder. Here's what I mean. We do all sorts of things to look for wonder. Like I, I, I saw a picture of Grand Falls or Chocolate Falls here in northern Arizona, and I said, I got to get there. I got to see this. And when I got there and I was looking at it, I'll tell you first, there was no dogs or parrots checking it out. It was just me and a bunch of other humans in awe of this magnificent waterfall. We're wonder seekers. We're all wonder seekers. We look for ways to be in awe. We look to ways to, to, be, uh, to, to find wonder in this world. Some of you do crazy things like jump out of planes and, and I don't ski and, and just things that, that I'm like, nah, not for me. And the reason you do that is because really you want King Jesus. You want wonderful King Jesus. Jesus who is full of wonder. That's what you want. And even when you are doing those things, when you're going to those places, you, what you are really doing is admiring the wonder of your king. Jesus made those things. Jesus holds all things together. Jesus is the creator of all. And so when I'm there uh, admiring Chocolate Falls, I'm really admiring the wonder of my creator, whether I acknowledge that or not. And so we're wonder seekers. And my hope is that this Advent season, we would look at the Advent story in a way that would cause us to be wonder seekers of Jesus himself. That we would look to see where does Jesus bring us wonder? In fact, let's just do that for a minute. Let's just look at some of the pieces of the Advent story and see how they're wondrous. That they should create awe in us even though we've heard them a million times. The, one, of the, one of the ways that G, God describes himself throughout the Bible is he says he's holy. And what that means, it does mean perfect in all of his attributes, but probably a better way to say it is set apart. 
that God, when he's talking to humanity, when he's talking to the people of Israel, he's saying, the best way for you guys to understand me is I'm not you. I am so far beyond you. I am a creator. You're created. Like, you, you can't understand that. I am holy. I am set apart. The holy set apart God of the universe says, you know what, though? I'm going to take on flesh. I'm going to take on flesh. Even though Jesus was completely set apart, he chose to take on flesh. That's wondrous. There is something wonderful about that. It should cause awe in us that if we really have this big vision of God as the Bible shows us who God is, if he is really even a fraction of how big we think he is, it should put awe in us when we have a God who is set apart but decides to become a part of his creation. That's wondrous. The God who, who knits us together in our mother's womb decided to be to knit together in a mother's womb. That's wondrous. God, in, he in, in himself is the most glorious, weighty being in the universe, deserving of all praise and honor and glory. And really all creation is made to give him those things. And yet, in the Advent story, we see that God who is worthy of all that glory humble himself. Thus showing us he is the most humble being in the universe. By becoming a baby. By being born into a poor family. That should cause awe in your hearts, friends. That is wondrous. Even if you've heard the Advent story a million times, that's wondrous that that is who our king is. That's wondrous. Let your hearts be stirred in affection and gaze at Jesus and see how wonderful he is. But here in the name, it doesn't say he's just wonderful. It also says he is a counselor. So Jesus is a counselor. So in Jesus' day and before Jesus' day and after Jesus' day, kings would employ counselors and these counselors, their job was to give the king advice about how they should do certain things. So whether the king was having economic issues or issues with crops or issues in war, the king would often hire counselors that knew more about that subject matter than he did, and he would take their advice and use it, uh, hopefully if it was good advice. And so when Isaiah 9.6 says that Jesus is the sort of king that is a counselor, it's saying Jesus is so wise, he doesn't need a counselor. That's the kind of king he is. You can trust Jesus as king because he is, he is a counselor king. He knows all. He specializes in everything. That is the sort of king we have in Jesus when it says that he is our counselor. And I really want to know, do you see Jesus as this wise? Do you see Jesus as this sort of counselor king over your life? Because uh, honestly, I, sometimes I'm a little bit saddened to see how often us as Christians are convinced that the things that Jesus taught weren't wise, are convinced they were just for very specific situations that we're all the exception to the rule. Now, there might be some of that. I'm not saying there isn't. 
But very often we, we convince ourselves that Jesus' way is not for us. I've, I've got a better way of figuring things out. Like it's, it's easy to gauge. Just look at how he says to do things and how he says to live life and, and ask yourself honestly, do you live life that way or have you created your own construct to live? Like, do you pray the way he encourages us to pray? Do you handle conflict the way he says to handle conflict? Do you look at sin the way that Jesus looks at sin? Do you treat people the way that Jesus encourages you to treat them? And sadly, sadly, I think we don't really think Jesus is our counselor king. We don't think he's really that wise because often in a lot of those areas we go, well, no, I have kind of a better way. And I'm not saying there's other ways to pray or whatever, but what I'm saying is often we just completely disregard Jesus' way and we make our own way. And my hope is this Advent season is that we would see that Jesus is incredibly wise and he knows what he's doing. So Jesus, our king who came to earth and is coming again, He's both wonderful and counselor, but in Isaiah 9, 6, it says he is a wonderful counselor. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean? It means that Jesus is so incredibly wise in how he runs things and how he does things that it should produce awe in us. That when we watch how Jesus governs, how Jesus takes care of things, it should cause us to go, oh my goodness, that is amazing. It should cause our hearts to flutter even, I think. That's what it means that he's a wonderful counselor. And so I think for us to see Jesus as a wonderful counselor, I think what we have to do is look at some of the things he says. Look at some of these big statements he made and see how wondrous they are and how only a wonderful counselor king could make those statements true. And then even I want us to look at how he describes his kingdom. And see that the sort of kingdom he describes is one that is only a wonderful counselor king can uphold. So let's look at a couple things he says. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He says that. It's, a, it's famous for us. We hear it all the time. But there's something, that, something about it that only a wonderful counselor king could say about it. Because what he's saying there is, a system is not the way, the truth, and the life. A way of doing things is not the way, the truth, and the life. Following certain rules is not the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, no, I, Jesus, am the way, the truth, and the life. There's something wondrous to us about that. There's also something wise about that. There's something in us that knows no system can serve us and give us truth and life. But there's something in us that goes, Maybe a person can. Maybe Jesus can. And I think it's because only Jesus can. Jesus is our wonderful counselor, king. He also says this. He says, he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Which at the time was kind of strange because he was basically saying to Israel, I know you guys have all these laws and you follow all these laws and I'm not abolishing them, but I'm the one actually fulfilling them. There's something wonderful about that. There's, our wonderful counselor king is saying this. Only our wonderful counselor king could that be true. Because what he's saying, he says, I think what he's saying is, even though the law points to your sin and says you're sinful, I'm going to be righteous enough for you. I'm going to live out the law in place of you. 
Even though the law says you should die for your sins, just read Leviticus for a few minutes, if you don't believe me, even though the law says that, I'm going to die for your sins. Even though you're using the law to try to get life, I'm going to give you life through my resurrection. This is only a wonderful counselor king that knows all and is wondrous can uphold that sort of a system that can do that sort of a work. And then look at how Jesus describes his kingdom. Only a wonderful counselor of a king can have a kingdom like this. He says it's like a small seed that grows into a big tree over time. Only a wonderful counselor can say, I'm going to guide my church. I'm going to grow my church as I see fit throughout time to one day when it is completely fruitful. Only a wonderful counselor king can say that. We're going to think there's this parable where he invites in all these people to a banquet and they don't want to come. And so he says, well, go invite out everybody on the roadsides, the lame, the crippled, the outcasts. He says, bring them into my kingdom. Only a wonderful counselor kingdom can have a kingdom that says the ones that understand their brokenness, the ones that are truly broken can get in. And we should be astounded by that sort of king because we go, I'm jacked up. We all know deep down there there are things going on in our heart, in our mind that appall us and we don't know how it got there. And that is how broken we are. And only our wonderful counselor king can invite us into the banquet, can bring us into the banquet. Because if he lets in what was known then as the dregs of society, then surely you and I can be in as well. Because deep down we are just as much the dregs of society. That, only a wonderful counselor kingdom can have a king like that. And then don't even get me started on the way that Jesus encourages us to love. There is a radical notion of love in Jesus' kingdom, loving of other, loving of God, loving of even your enemy, and only a wonderful counselor king can uphold that sort of kingdom. Jesus is a wonderful counselor king, and we should praise him for it. If we look even at more ideas of Jesus's, at one point we're going to cry out like David in Psalm 139 where he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That's what should begin to happen when we look at Jesus as our wonderful counselor king that it causes wonder in us, that it even causes trust in us to know that he knows best, that he is doing what is right. And so I hope we've gotten a gaze, a deeper gaze into who Jesus is by, by looking at this word, wonderful counselor. But here's what I know too about our similarity to Israel in the book of Isaiah. Is Isaiah and the people of Israel and Isaiah, they, there was this faithful remnant that, that was repentant, that did stop worshiping idols and stopped rebelling against God. And yet they still had to go through the same judgment that all of Israel had to go through. And so they, there was these moments where they experienced this brokenness even though they knew the goodness of God. Even though they, even though they knew the goodness of God was coming to save them. 
I think that's true for us. Like for us as Christians, sometimes I think it's hard because we're, we're, we're going, God, why are you allowing me to experience this sort of, of, of brokenness? Why are you letting it abound? And I think it's sometimes because we've lost this vision that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. That he is holy and set apart and beyond us and he is guiding history correctly and wisely so that all might be saved. And so I want to close, though, on another passage in Isaiah. And the reason I want to close there, though, is because I think it was God's heart that, that the remnant of Israel would be encouraged by these messianic passages. Those are passages about Jesus coming to save all and be the king they needed. And so he gives these beautiful pictures all throughout Isaiah of the sort of kingdom that Jesus is going to bring. And I think this, there's this picture in Isaiah chapter 65 that I, I, I in particular want us to look at. And the reason I want us to look at it is because even though in Isaiah chapter 65 it's spoken to for Jerusalem, we know because Jesus' government has no end, it is also for us. And we know that he is going to bring the fullness of this sort of kingdom. And I want it to encourage our hearts that we have a good and wise king who is wonderful, who will make all things right one day, who will take away all pain and sadness and sickness. That is why the Advent story is so beautiful. It's because that king has arrived. And so we're going to go to verse 17. And what you're going to see in here is there's going to be some lines that might be kind of confusing for you. As, as Isaiah describes the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring to earth one day. And just know that, that God, through Isaiah, is trying to give Israel a vision that is so beyond their imaginations. Because that's the sort of kingdom that God brings. Verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Only a king who is a wonderful counselor can uphold that sort of kingdom. Only a king who's a mighty God can uphold that sort of kingdom. 
Only a king who is an everlasting father can uphold that sort of kingdom. Only a king who is a prince of peace can uphold that sort of kingdom. That is our king, Jesus. He is wonderful counselor, and my hope is that our hearts will be stirred to praise him more this Advent season. Will you pray with me to that king? God, we love you and we need you immensely. Thank you so much for being our king. Thank you so much for having the sort of government that has no end. Thank you for being the sort of king that's going to be, bring peace that has no end. And Jesus, as much as we struggle in the midst of it, thank you for showing us a glimpse and starting that kingdom and bringing the advent of that kingdom all those years ago. And God, as we wait, and it's hard for us to wait, Help us to have a true hope in knowing that our wonderful counselor king is going to arrive one day and usher in this sort of a kingdom. God, we love you and we need you. Stir our hearts today and for the rest of this Advent season to see you as our king who has come to earth and will come again. God, we love you and we need you. Thank you for your goodness. Amen.